0: New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Michael Johnston. Today I'm joined by Marianne Spurdle who who is a fellow with the Maxim Institute, and another think tank. You're located in Auckland. Yep. And uh, Stephanie Martin, who is an adjunct fellow with the New Zealand Initiative and co-author with me on a recent paper on teacher education. And teacher education seems like a good place to start since you, Marianne, have also recently written... Uh, a a paper on that subject. Yeah. How did you find that process and and what did you light upon as some of the problems in in teacher education that we need to sort out in New Zealand?
1: Unlike you guys, I don't have a background in education. I kind of came to it fresh with my assumptions about how it would work, Um, just knowing what I know friends and family members have experienced. And I think what was striking to me was you guys report brings out in great detail, is how little evidence-based teaching is involved. So you would just assume, coming from the outside, that someone somewhere has gone, what teaching methods are most effective? Let's replicate those. And that's not at all how it works. It's very ideologically driven.
0: Yes. And, and Stephanie, you, you had some experience directly as, as a, a teacher yourself with teacher training in New Zealand, I think that probably accords both with your direct experience as well as the the work that you and I did uh, researching for that report. So Yes, absolutely. Can you fill in there exactly what kind of ideology we're talking about?
2: Well, I think the thing that really stood out to me, which was sort of a hunch to begin with through my experience, but then was confirmed by what we did was the sort of inclination towards social justice themes. So what what does that
0: mean? I mean, it sounds like a good thing, social justice.
2: (laughs) It does, doesn't it, on the surface of it. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with the ambitions of what social justice is trying to achieve. The problem is how, or the difference, I suppose, in the ways of thinking about it is how we think that equitable outcomes are most likely to be enabled. And I would say that the difference is that in the way that it's currently being talked about is it's more of a focus on ideas of social justice in the sense of who's being marginalised and in what ways and where power lies and how power dynamics work in the classroom and disestablishing, I would say, the teacher's power and trying to redistribute it to the students in the classroom in equal measure to the teacher. Where I would say that what we have found is that there are teaching methods that we know to be most effective and actually what would be most effective in supporting those students who are currently not being well served by the system would be to implement those effective teaching pedagogies, as Marianne was sort of getting at there. You'd think that we'd go about teaching them in the most effective ways, but instead we sort of seem to be caught in this, or it seems to me anyway, a bit of an echo chamber of re-establishing that we have a problem. But I think everyone sort of knows that we've got a problem. And so now it's time to sort of move past that and think about how we can best serve the people who aren't currently being served well by the system. It seems to me that the best way of doing that would be effective teaching practices. So (laughs)
0: we'll, we'll come to what those effective teaching practices might be. Perhaps, first of all, it's worth clarifying the way in which the social justice philosophy conceptualizes educational disadvantage. To my, to my reading, it's usually in terms of identity categories, and in, in New Zealand particularly ethnicity. Would you agree with that, Marianne?
1: Yeah, and that's another thing that I came to not really understanding how embedded that is. You would assume that, especially in a highly individualized environment, you would be looking at students based on how they're performing, on you know, measurable things, and not on who they are as a person, where they come from. But
0: and that, that would be on an individual basis yeah, rather than on the basis of group characteristics.
1: Categorizing people based on yeah, hmm. those kind of social understandings. So yeah, that, that surprised me.
0: So we, we might think that there are there are kind of two problems with as you say, Steph, it's a it's a good aim to have social justice and to have everybody succeeding well, irrespective of their backgrounds and so on. But it seems like there are two problems with the way it's being currently conceptualized. One is to be looking at group characteristics rather than individual students and, and where they're at. And second, as you've alluded, Steph, there's a kind of overly egalitarian conceptualization of the role of the teacher in the classroom not positing them as a, as a holder of expert knowledge but as a equal to the students in constructing knowledge does that does that kind of sum up the problem do you think
1: yes i, I think so and just the word knowledge reading how knowledge isn't accumulated information things that we can prove but it's i think Steph, you spoke about how consensus is kind of how knowledge is defined in some ways, where if, if people agree with a certain outlook, then that is what is you know true or accepted. And there are different you know knowledges. Instead of going, what is the evidence saying, and can we just agree on this being knowledge that needs to be shared? That wasn't in my vocabulary before. A different mm. type of knowledge. Knowledge
0: is plural. So that I mean, I mean, and that kind of. Sitting behind that, you would think that points to there being plural realities, yeah. if, if if there can be plural knowledges, as it were. So that seems to be a very deep philosophical commitment uh, to to say that almost there is no objective world, but there are multiple ways in which knowledge can be constructed. Did you come across this idea? Because Steph and I certainly came across this idea of what you call social constructivism in education i'd be interested in your take on that on that philosophy which which does posit that people in different cultures from different backgrounds construct their understanding of the world in almost completely different and unrelated ways
1: Mm. when you're not embedded in academia like i haven't been just as a normal person you don't really assume that so i think i think most people if they understood how far that ideology goes i think they'd be surprised and i think it would be at odds with what they understand Mm.
0: Yeah. So did you look into that way of thinking much for, for your report?
1: No, I, I came across it more often than not in, you know, like your Saving Schools report and others that speak about why that isn't helpful. Um, and the, the evidence around why it isn't helpful seemed very persuasive because it's at odds with the reality that I think most of us experience.
0: Yes, I wonder as well if... That kind of thinking, especially in education, sets us up to have a more divided society than perhaps we'd like. If we accept the idea that people can construct completely different versions of reality, and of course we would accept that people have different ways of understanding things, some people have a religious outlook and other people don't, but traditionally in our, in our secular public school system, we, we focused on the knowledge that at least up until now we thought we could agree on.
1: Hmm. I think that came across clearly from a, a variety of channels, the difference between focusing on the differences between students and teaching to that, and the difference between focusing on the things we have in common, starting with that, how do you teach assuming that this is the way our minds and memory work, and the evidence that, you know, whether it's the curriculum or teacher training, those who go that direction have better student outcomes than those who focus on and teach to differences. Yeah. The evidence was clear when I looked at that.
0: You, you you had a point about that, Steph?
2: Um no, I was going to take that in a different direction. So well, I go, think that's go, 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 where
0: go, I want to Please that. do, go ahead.
2: <laughs> well, I was just it, it just occurred to me while you were talking just a minute ago about the kind of constructivist outlook that a question that I often wonder is how far that goes or how far we take that. Because if we consider all knowledges to be equally valid, which is sort of what's written into that social constructivist framework, then I wonder what kinds of things teachers should be starting to accept in the classroom. Like, I wonder, you know, when I'm sitting doing a maths workshop with a group of kids, if if a kid says to me, well, five plus three is nine, is that a different knowledge that I should then be accepting? Or is there some kind of boundary that prevents that?
0: Uh, uh, our, li- our listeners may be taken aback to hear this, but there is a school of thought, and it is embedded in the draft common practice model produced by the Ministry of Education that says that you should accept a different conceptualization of five plus three.
1: Which is a logical conclusion. And I, I suppose it is. It proves that it's a bad starting point. And, and some people yeah.
0: have taken it to that logical conclusion. And, and while the common practice model itself doesn't say, exactly that. There is a Canadian educational thinker from which the common practice model has drawn, or from whom the common practice model has drawn, who does contend exactly that. He's gone to so far as to say that if you insist that two plus two equals four, that might be racist.
1: I think it comes back to what people's intentions for education is. That was a paper, a brief that one of my co-workers put out recently. Like, what is education for? And if you believe that education is to to change and construct society, then it doesn't matter what the numbers add up to, does it? Right. So I think we're talking about people with different aims, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. That's what it seems to me like the more I looked at it.
0: I think that's an important insight. And, you know, another thing that this philosophy tends to ignore, and you've alluded to this when you mentioned human memory and, and perception and so on, is that actually the... There's much more that unifies human beings than there is that divides us. So, you know, we belong to the same species irrespective of our culture and we've evolved with more or less the same processes over the time that human beings have existed. And consequently, we all have more or less the same kinds of brains that have the same memory systems and language systems and perceptual systems and so on. And, and of course, all of this does have implications for how we learn and therefore what the the best teaching methods might be. Did you think about those issues when you were writing your report?
1: Yeah, that theme seemed to come out a lot. And even with the curriculum, the idea that it needs to be so open and unspecified as it is now to leave room for what people might want to plug in and not, not being willing to say, this is our starting point. These are the things we should all have in common as far as what we need to know. Yeah, it just seemed to, that pattern over and over seemed yep. to come up.
0: Yes, we'll, we'll come back to the curriculum very shortly because I think you've written another report about that. But first of all, I think it's worth reflecting that Actually, our understanding of human memory and human language and attention and and these kinds of cognitive functions has now developed to the point where we have got what's called the science of learning, which has a great deal to inform about teacher education.
1: Mm.
0: In your report, did you explore those issues?
1: Yeah, I think one of the the illustrations um, that popped up, just as we were putting the final touches on, was out of Canberra in Australia. And I understand their ministers of education are gonna require ITE to include science of learning. That's
0: initial teacher education for readers who may not know.
1: So that was encouraging. And that move there, there were several newspaper articles about what went on in a group of schools where the director decided to retrain all 1,500 teachers. So take 1,500 experienced qualified teachers and send them back for training in science of learning stuff, so classroom management, memory, the kind of stuff that you guys have been writing on. And the fascinating thing was their, the percentage of students who were underperforming in reading went from 42% to 4% over three years, and that included right. retraining the teachers, not <laughs> just changes in, in classroom teaching. So that told me that the people who are speaking about this are on the right track because that's a massive improvement.
0: It's a massive improvement. Are we, are we talking about early primary school kids here? or um, This is
1: primary school, yeah.
0: Primary school. And was the training specifically in structured literacy or was it more general than that? Do you know?
1: I saw it came under four headers and I believe that was one of the yeah mm. methods of teaching. Because that
0: would certainly account for the improvement in reading and, yeah. and we know the evidence on that. What, what were the other things, do you remember, that they, they focused on?
1: Um, I know that it was contextualised teaching Classroom management and then two areas that have to do with cognitive psychology. Right. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see what specifically they were learning. I just saw the, the main headers.
0: Yeah. Now, the classroom management one is an interesting one because, of course, that isn't precisely science of learning in the sense mm-hmm. that it's not necessarily about human information processing. But it, but it's certainly true that if a teacher can't establish order in their class, then nobody's going to learn anything much. Steph, in your training, did you have any focus on that, on, on how to deal with issues in the in the class, if you've got a, a child who's especially disruptive, what you do about it or, or how you establish an orderly working environment?
2: Not from the university end, but... I think that's sort of, it's appreciated that the best way to learn that kind of thing is in the classroom on the job. Right, so, so that's that when tends you do your practicum. to be, can't fall under the purview of when you're on your practica experiences. So I guess that just reinforces how important having good quality practica experience is, right? And the amount of time and spent in the classroom and how robust an experience that is for the student teacher or the teacher in training. Typically, I would say that behavior management strategies are learned from the associate teachers. So that's the qualified teacher that you're in the classroom with when you're a training teacher. You sort of learn by watching and by their feedback on how you manage things. Sometimes some schools that you do a practica in might provide some extra sort of workshops on behavior management. But again, that's sort of a luck of the draw situation as it stands at the moment, whether you're in a school that happens to provide that sort of thing or not.
0: So if you're in a school that doesn't, and the associate teacher with whom you're prepared, uh, sorry, paired, actually doesn't maintain very good or, order in their classroom, you may not get very much at all on on how to do that. Correct. So, That's Mar- The
2: situation as it stands at the moment.
0: Marion, to to your understanding, what what kinds of things do teachers need to be educated in in order to be able to establish a good orderly learning environment?
1: Most of what I assumed would be around classroom management, having a good grip on what needs to be taught. And a lot of what I've come across looking at this over the past few months is a lot of the stuff you guys have put out and stuff in those circles. So my tendency is to, (laughs) to see that as, you know, what's best. I think... Your personal example, Steph, of learning about teacher efficacy and what you guys wrote about the importance of that, I found that quite key. And just just stopping to think that some teachers think they are just guides and some teachers recognise that they actually have a huge role to play in imparting knowledge because my assumption was that you go into the classroom thinking you're imparting knowledge, but that is not actually the assumption for a lot of teachers.
0: Yeah, it comes back to that social constructivist, Question yeah. again
1: you don't have knowledge to impart if there are knowledges
0: Steph and I in- interviewed Kevin Knight who's the director of the Graduate school the New Zealand Graduate School of Education recently and and he has a particularly attractive term I think which is that teachers are causal in learning that really struck me as a, a really important way to put it and it's another way of talking about teacher efficacy I suppose that, that teachers see themselves as being, The responsible for the learning of their students. Mm.
1: One of the things I kept hitting up against and speaking to people was the phrase, teachers aren't valued enough, and and trying to find out why. Mm. And there are obviously many reasons, but I think that the shifting idea that teachers aren't the ones in the classroom imparting knowledge and actually have the agency to make a big difference, I think if you take that away from teachers they're not going to see themselves as valuable as they actually are. right? And the parents are the students who may not be progressing like they should want either. And it's kind of got this snowball effect, doesn't it?
0: Yes. Well, yeah. va- va- valuing a profession doesn't happen in a vacuum, does it? The, you value something because it's contributing or you value someone in their professional role because they're doing their job in a way that you can see is effective. And in the case of teachers, you see their kids learning things and making progress and mm. it, if enough parents notice that our, our young people are not making the progress that they should, then that is not good for the reputation of the teaching profession.
1: Yeah. And reading the teaching council's standards for education, you know, the vague standards that are out there and thinking most of those any good babysitter should be able to right. know. You know, it that doesn't help. They're,
0: they're terribly <laughs> in specific, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. We noticed that too. And that, again, that contrasts sharply with, with Kevin Knight's Graduate School of, of Education Uh where they have a long list of criteria that teachers and training have to satisfy before they can graduate. And, and these are very specific, measurable things about what they're doing in the class. Perhaps we should turn to the curriculum now, and you've written a report about that as well, which unlike your teacher education report, I haven't read. Could, could you tell us a little about that and what motivated you to write it and, and what you found?
1: Yeah, again, it was one of those things I came to fresh. I haven't taught from the curriculum. I didn't even go through public school in New Zealand. I did a little schooling here when I was a kid, but I haven't been to even the previous version of what current students are learning. So I really have very few preconceptions. And what I learned was it is very skeletal. Mm -hmm. There's very little direction for teachers. And very much like teacher education, there there doesn't seem to be an agreement on what students in the classroom should be learning at each level, aside from some very broad things and jump in, Steph, with anything that you've observed teaching it. But that was my impression.
0: Yeah. Do you ever yeah. use the curriculum, Steph?
2: Well, my role is slightly different now, so I'm not really involved in the planning side of things. Right. I, Teach to planning that other teachers have done. So,
0: but, but I mean, as a practicing classroom teacher, how often do you open the New Zealand curriculum and look in it?
2: Yeah. So, but but as a like when I was practicing, it's very rare. Yeah. yeah. Because it's just not specific enough.
0: That's so no so help.
2: It doesn't really provide you with any guidance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I found Dr. Nina Hood's recent report on the variability of the curriculum and its application that. I think, highlighted a lot of the on-the-ground effects of it. So looking at how teachers are sourcing materials from all over the place, social media, other teachers, I didn't expect to see that. I, I thought that there would be some kind of you know standard you'd pull off the shelf. And no,
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> the amount of
1: time <laughs> teachers take to prepare those materials is, I mean, that seems like a huge workload over and above everything else that they're already doing. Right. And it's I not... Just- yeah sorry yeah no, go for it
2: <laughs> i was just going to say i i do think that that's part of what's making teachers workloads feel so enormous yeah. at the moment is the fact that i read it recently actually that teachers are reinventing the wheel by candlelight over and over again <laughs> all the time you know and and that is what's happening like teachers are staying up late and working weekends to to do planning that if we had a more specified curriculum yeah. then i feel that they wouldn't need to be investing so much of their personal time in, working out exactly what to teach no and that i really don't say that to undermine teachers capabilities at all exactly it (laughs) It just just seems to me that if we work together that
0: or if the ministry of education provided a comprehensive curriculum that that every teacher in the country could use to at least have a a strong basis for their teaching programs in in their classes, then they wouldn't have to all spend this time, as you say, reinventing the wheel over and over again. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And from what I understood, the reason for it being this way is so that courses can be um, localised, contextualised, but there's no reason that can't be done while having a foundation of of learning. And then you can add on stuff that relates to, you know, geographical location cultural stuff like that doesn't preclude Mm. it
0: well i wonder if it relates once again to this social constructivist philosophy because again if you take if you take the view that knowledge is constructed differently in different communities to a a quite quite radical extent yeah then you don't want a specified curriculum because that would imply that knowledge is the same everywhere for everyone
2: yeah and how dare you
0: Mm. (laughs) yes
2: well it it does open that up doesn't it because if if all knowledges are equally valid and true, then how does one go about forming a cohesive singular curriculum?
0: Indeed, mm. well, you can't, and that if that <laughs> so, if that is the underlying philosophy, then I suppose the New Zealand curriculum has it right. You have a few sketch marks uh, for people to kind of start with, and then they construct their local curriculum according to the completely different knowledge in one part of the country than we might construct in another
1: yeah I think what was compelling for me looking into it was international trends that have been brought out in different reports and how France I think in the late 80s went to a more skills-based curriculum which I doubt was as sparse as what we've got now but reading and math scores started declining the UK after changing their curriculum and I believe a lot of countries did you know 20 odd years ago started going that direction they did a U turn about what ten years ago. Yeah. And scores that's right. have improved. And the
0: Australians have also done that.
1: Yep. And reading uh, an educator from South Africa who, you know, they went down that track and they're going, Nope, that was that was the wrong course. Someone else who from the nineteen seventies was influential in the kind of research pushing that initially. And then after seeing it, you know, actually evaluating, which is always helpful when you evaluate the outcomes of these changes, evaluating the outcomes in these, um, what we call lower all schools in the UK and realizing this isn't helping. It, it isn't because this is a curriculum imposed on them that is foreign. That's not the problem. Mm. And those people coming to the conclusion that actually there is powerful knowledge and the great equalizer is giving all students access to powerful knowledge, deciding what it is, making sure it's embedded in every school
0: yeah that term powerful knowledge that that that's that was coined i think by michael fd young who was a or is a, a, an english uh, sociologist of education and in his earlier days he did go down this road i think and he, he was concerned with social class more than ethnicity but certainly and certainly there's things to worry about in that regard but as you say he eventually came to the conclusion that the problem was not that we needed to kind of move the school system so it recognised the local knowledge of working class people, but rather that we needed to adapt it so that the powerful knowledge, as you as you and he put it, which includes the disciplines of mathematics and science and history, as, as well as being able to read and write and all, all those things that take us places in life, needed to be made accessible. And he... he distinguished what he called, and I think he, this was in a paper that he wrote with Johannes Müller. he distinguished what he called an over-socialized versus under-socialized view of knowledge. In, in other words, he he wanted to recognize that there are accessibility barriers based on social circumstances, and I think we need to recognize that because we do have a very great gradient in, in educational attainment based on socioeconomic backgrounds of, of kids, and we can think of all sorts of reasons why, why that's true. So we do have to take seriously the fact that some kids, by dint of their social disadvantage, actually have much more trouble accessing that universal, powerful knowledge than, than others.:
1: mm. I thought that was one of the big ironies that people who are and I, I think everybody's highly committed to inequality being diminished and those who have disadvantage being helped those who are very outspoken about it are often advocating methods of teaching that actually perpetuate those problems Mm -hmm. and where you've got an underspecified underspecified curriculum you actually in New Zealand has seen this we have a growing disparity between those who are achieving well and those who aren't it's at the very working. same time
0: that this this kind exactly. of so, social justice based pedagogy has become popular, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. and it's had years to prove itself, and it hasn't.
0: It's in fact, as you just said, it's counter evidence yeah. for it now.
1: Yeah, everyone does worse, and those at the bottom do even worse. Even
0: worse. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you have any final thoughts on that, uh, Steph, as as a practicing classroom teacher? If you, to what extent, have you experienced classrooms in different socioeconomic strata and and how, if so, how have you seen that play out in terms of the the kind of teaching that is now popular and, and promulgated through teacher education and also the what we might call the under-socialised view of knowledge in our curriculum?
2: Well, to be honest, I was teaching where obviously the decile system's recently been changed, but through my teacher training, I worked in a lower decile community like as a trainee teacher. But in my teaching career, I made choices to go to different, more higher decile schools. The reasoning behind that was that support as an early professional in the classroom is known to be much better in higher decile schools than in lower decile schools. So it seemed to me that it would just be a necessary step for me to move into a space where I would know that I would be better supported with eventually I had at that time sort of planned on taking that expertise into once I'd gathered them more strongly into those lower decile communities
0: I see yeah the
2: trajectory has changed but that was the idea I'd had friends who'd gone from sort of teacher training straight into lower decile schools and they just weren't supported at all and ended up leaving the profession really quite quickly. And, and is get, that
0: because in those schools teachers just have a lot more to do and they're much more stressed because of the the social environment being typically more chaotic or or, or the the demands on teachers being greater in terms of the social overcoming the social disadvantage of the, the the children?
2: I think there's a few things that play into it. I think a major component is the and we sort of talked about this in our report as well as the mental teachers and having access to um, supportive mental teachers, having access to ongoing professional development. A really critical one is getting the release time from the classroom that you're entitled to. That's not to point fingers at lower decil schools. I think it's actually a situation where they're really struggling. And this is something I'd like to sort of talk more about that came for me out of your teacher education report, Marianne, is staffing shortages. Lower decile communities or what were lower decile communities are really struggling with the staffing shortages. And where you just don't have the relief teachers or the release teachers to cover the classroom release time that you need as a beginning teacher, if there's no one there to do it, there's no one there to do it. So you just don't get that time. Mm. And you really need that time (laughs) when you're starting out. You really need the time outside of the classroom to do things like assessment with the kids that you need to know where they're at. So you need to do that assessment with them. You need the time to plan. You need the time to go and observe other teachers in practice so that you can learn from that modeling. There are things that you need to be doing as a beginning teacher to upskill yourself and if you're not getting that release time, then you're not able to do that, and that's just much more difficult.
0: So it's, a, like... it's a bit of a perfect storm, isn't it? We've yeah. got we've got young teachers, new teachers going into classrooms with uncertain and variable support. We've got a curriculum that doesn't help them much, and in primary schools that matters a lot because you've got to teach across the whole curriculum. At least as a secondary school teacher. you've got a degree in the subject that you specialised in, so maybe a a looser curriculum is less of an issue for you because at least you know the subject. But in primary schools, what are you going to do? You've got to invent it all for yourself. And and as you're saying, Steph, in some schools, that release time isn't available because of teacher shortages. Mm -hmm. So, you know... I mean,
2: something that came out of our report which really shocked me is that there are actually schools that are functioning at the moment that don't have access to a single reliever. Gee, And so, like right now, like for me in Auckland, there are schools that are operating that don't have access to a reliever. So, I mean, what do you do?
0: (laughs) I wonder what they do do when several teachers are sick on a day and Mm. they they need to maintain certain ratios to fulfil legal requirements in terms of Mm. teachers to students. What Mm. do they do?
2: Yeah, and this really ties back, I think, into mary Ann, you really highlighted a lot of these staffing shortage issues in your report, Hey, and some of them um, I wasn't actually aware with, aware of. And I mean, you're having situations that are as bad as schools. Some schools right are stopping running certain subjects because yeah. they don't. I mean, I've kind of drifted into secondary with saying that, but stopping certain subjects. We've got classes being split. We've got students being asked to stay home. Yeah. There are all sorts of sort of ways that schools are finding to try and grapple with the problem, but
1: yeah, and hiring unqualified or underqualified teachers because that's all they've got. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it's, it, things are a little bit grim in education at the moment. Uh, this conversation seems to have <laughs> pointed out. So I would like to see education be a much more discussed topic during the election campaign than seems to be the case listeners should really inform themselves about the policies of the different parties and, and spokespeople for education and see who is offering to fix or start to fix these problems and I'm not going to offer any advice in that regard because this is a, a non-partisan podcast and for a non-partisan think tank but it really should be something that's front and centre of New Zealanders' minds as they think about how to cast their vote because the future of our country depends on it and look thank you so much for the conversation today marianne and it's great to have contact with you as somebody who's working in this area is alongside people like steph and me so it's, it's been really good and, and thank you once again steph for the work you do nice. thank you thank
2: you marianne it's lovely to see you you too